Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In this uh, chapter, we'll have more rebuking by the Apostle Paul. He had rebuked the Corinthians in the last chapter for a man being in their midst that they had not dealt with, who had committed fornication such as had not been named among even the heathen, and they were going along and not doing anything about it, not talking to him about it, and the church had not uh, disciplined that particular man. And so he rebuked them for that, and we won't go back and teach what we taught last week, but we will say that in this chapter he continues. There's more rebuking. You know, Paul told Timothy to rebuke with all long suffering and doctrine, and that's exactly what he was doing here uh, for the Corinthians, Paul was doing for the Corinthians. Now then, uh, you'll find in this chapter the sin of fraud in verses 1 through 8, fraud between uh, brethren, verses 9 and 10, the sin of immorality, and then on down you'll find sins against the body, and uh, that takes us through the rest of the chapter more or less. So you'll find at least those uh, three things pointed out, the sin of fraud and the sin of uh, immorality, and then the sins against the body. So let's look at verse 1 and read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll come back and talk about it a little. And Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for this particular thing among them when they had a dispute and one was jealous or greedy and tried to uh, take advantage of the other as a Christian. And he said, you, you shouldn't act like that. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Now then, it seems here, well, I, I said I was going to read it first, so I guess I better go ahead and do it. Uh, let's go ahead and read it. Do ye not therefore uh, know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Now, notice this is pertaining to Christian brethren and disputes between one another. And it usually happens when one or someone is greedy and tries to take advantage of the other. It, it happens in many cases, but as far as Christians are concerned, it should not be so. And Paul rebukes them in verse 1, says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust? Now, he's talking about going to the uh, Roman law or before the law of heathen nations, are taking their case to the law uh, as then was, and not before saints. It seems that the Christians, the early Christians, had the same privileges that the Jews did, that they could have their own uh, disputes settled, just as the Jews could have done. And the Jews would, in the case of Jesus, if you'll remember, they had to seek the uh, law of the land to pass the sentence of death, and that otherwise they would have judged the case themselves had they not been so bent 
on trying to put Jesus to death. And so the saints had the same privilege, and they could have settled their own dispute. Now then, uh, all Christians should be able to settle these disputes between themselves. And he tells us how to deal with these differences in this life, that we should even be able to set those that are least esteemed in the church. And we shouldn't have to have the most high in the church to be able to make such judgment because in these matters we should be able to come to uh, reconcile our differences and deal with our differences. Now then, all Christians should be honest with one another. I want to give you four verses of Scripture on being honest with one another. In the book of Luke, chapter 8 and verse 15, it tells us that because we are children of God, because the seed of God has fallen upon good ground, it says, but that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. If you remember, the other seed fell upon stony ground and, and rocky ground, among thorns and so on, and uh, by the wayside, various ways. But the seed that falls on good ground, it says, are they which in an honest and good heart. Now then, we don't have an honest and good heart until... The seed falls upon our heart and makes us what we need to be, and we're really born again, children of God, and uh, we accept Jesus as our Savior, and there's a, the fruit is produced. But then we find that in another scripture in the book of uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says this, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Don't try to get even with somebody by doing evil to them if they've done evil to you. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Provide things as far as daily provision. We have a good and honest heart. We're to be good and honest in our providing uh, for uh, things in the sight of all men. Another scripture we find in the book of Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 21. It says this, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. <coughs> so that what we do is not only before men, but it's before God. And we need to realize that uh, before the Lord, and before man, it has to be considered. Another scripture is 1 Peter 2.12, and it says this, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, Christians were to even walk honest among the heathen, the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, they cannot prove that you are dishonest, they cannot accuse you of that. They may speak evil against you as evildoers, but they really uh, have no case. And so if we provide things honest and have an honest conversation and are honest before God and before men, then the Lord will bless us. And in doing all of this, the Lord is just preparing us for a greater work in the future. He's preparing us here on the earth for a work that we will have when we get to glory. In verse 2 he says, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? The saints shall judge the world. And if the world shall be judged by you. In verse 3 he says, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How shall we judge the world? And how shall we judge angels? We are told that the saints will judge the world at the coming of Christ. We're told that the saints will rule and reign with Christ over the world. We're told here that we shall judge angels. We will even judge the bad angels to their destruction at the coming of Christ. And I suppose that maybe even the good angels, that when they are in glory, found to be worthy of certain honors, that we will, as Jesus gives those honors to them, we may be affirming those and judging 
are in harmony with Christ's judgment concerning those good angels. We don't know that to be true. There's not too much evidence in Scripture of anything of the nature of judging angels, but what we find, uh, mostly what we find right here. But we know that the angels are reserved in judgment, and that that great judgment will take place, that, that is, the bad angels are reserved until a day of judgment. We know that that judgment will take place at the second coming of Christ. So there's not only the uh, definite thought of the judging of the bad angels, but the idea that possibly we shall be able to judge the good angels as they're given rewards from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord is preparing us for a greater work than we have here. Now then, in Matthew 19, verses 27 and 28, I'd like for you to think of this verse. If you don't have time to turn to these references, just listen to them. We said he's preparing us for a greater work. Matthew 19, 27, 28. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He said this would be the job of the apostles. Now we find that they were given a special place of judgment. And then you turn to Matthew 25, verse 21. It says this, uh, His Lord said unto him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. This is spoken in general terms concerning faithful Christians. That he says, you've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler or judge in authority over uh, many things because of your faithfulness. And we find over in the book of Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, it says this, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So we'll be put in a place of authority, in a place of judging, in a place of greater possessions. And the Lord is now preparing us for those things. Well, if that be the case, certainly if the saints shall judge the world, and the saints shall judge angels, and we're prepared to judge in the future when Jesus comes, and that's what he's talking about, then certainly we ought to be able to set, settle the smallest matters amongst ourselves. Now then, the question comes up, and uh, someone has said, well, what about when, when you go to, to law with an unbeliever or with one outside of your fellowship? And that happens sometimes, and sometimes it's forced upon us. In fact, there's a case that's forced upon me as a result. It's been a long time coming. It's been over a year now. But anyway, I hope someday it'll be settled. But it's a matter of a contract that needed to be settled. And uh, we trust, I trust you'd pray that it will be uh, soon uh, settled. Courts are loaded up and they have to have those things. It's the first time I ever had to do that in my life, my whole lifetime. And I just pray that the Lord will work it out for his glory and for our good. So you pray about it that God will take care of that. But anyway, sometimes we're forced in the courts for one reason or another. And uh, that doesn't mean that you should just uh, back down and give up every just cause just because you're supposed to be able to judge matters amongst yourselves, as, amongst ourselves as Christians. And we should be able to do that. And I trust that we'll not have to go to law or to court with one another. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but you've seen this people's court on television from time to time. I, I never could understand. Now, I know those are small cases, but some of them are so small, I don't see why they'd even uh, go, go to court about them. 
when they see the limit of their claim is like $1,500, that's the highest they can go. Well, I could kind of understand that, though I've suffered the loss of nearly that much without <laughs> trying to settle it. But anyway, when it comes down to like $50 or $60 and go to court about it, and some of the cases are the smallest, less than $100. Some are two or three or four, but some are less than even a hundred dollars, and and people are found in court. Well, I don't know if they do that to get on television. I don't guess they do because they've already had these courts waiting for them in the in the smaller courts, so they've already been cases that have been filed. So I don't suppose it's for that purpose. But anyway, we find them for a very small amount. We should be able to suffer the loss of something, but when it's such a great amount that uh, that. It really needs to be settled. I can understand why it happens many times. But especially for Christian brethren, we should be able to settle it amongst ourselves or suffer the loss of it ourselves between one another. Now I want you to notice the sin, I said, of immorality. If you look at verses 9 and 10, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says that these kind of people are not inheritors of the kingdom of God. In other words, this is a sign of being lost if a person continually persists in those kinds of sins, that they're, that they're lost. It doesn't mean a person cannot be saved from them. He can. Because he goes on to say, and such were some of you concerning the Corinthians. They were of that nature. Some of them were of the most vile and base and terrible sins of immorality they had committed. But still, if they continued in those kind of sins, he says, those will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if a man persists in immorality... He is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Some people say, well, try to explain that for a person that, that says he's a Christian and lives that way. Well, it's either one or two things. He was never really a Christian, or if he is, God's going to, to so chasten him and judge him and correct him, he's either going to come back or God will cut him off of this life. One of the two is going to happen. And so he can rest assured if he's a child of God, he can't get by with immorality and continually living in sin. And the Bible describes such as do that they're living uh, for uh, Satan. And let me read uh, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, it says, Little children, let no man, no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. The general trend of a man's life, a man that lives righteous, or he lives right, he does right things, is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Now, I want you to notice, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Let's stop there for a moment. It says, he that committeth sin. Now, that means that, keep, that he keeps on committing sin and lives in immorality. It says in verse 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. There's a certain part about a true believer that is born of the Spirit, and that part of our new man, our new being, that which is born again, our spiritual nature, does not commit sin. And when we sin, it's, it's like Paul said, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. We still have the flesh, and we still are capable of committing sin. But the Christian is to confess his sins once he does sin. In verse 
verse 10 it says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So he says the man that persists in sin, the man that does not do righteousness, he's not of God. And this manifests or defines the children of God and the children of the devil. Now a man that consistently lives in sin, he, of course, uh, and lives in immorality, it's a sign of being lost. You have a, the description of it in the book of Galatians as well. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says this. It says, uh, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. In verse 21, endings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So, the fellow that says that he's all right with God and lives immorally and lives in these sins of the flesh, as we said, there's one or two things wrong. He either neither was saved or he is going to go so far till the Lord is going to have to chasten and judge him and maybe even unto death. Now then, let's look at verse um, 11. Paul says, in such words, that word were is very important. Such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, there are three things about these that are saved. Three things happen to us when we are saved. And the first thing is that we're washed. We're washed by the blood of Christ. The Bible says unto him that loved us and washed us. You find that in Revelation 1, 5. And him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Speaking of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that there is a cleansing by the blood of Christ. In the book of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, it tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth, keeps on cleansing us. From all sin. So you're washed. You're washed by the blood of Christ. The Spirit. A washing by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5 tells us this. Listen carefully. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Listen carefully now. By the washing of regeneration. This is the Holy Spirit. And renewing of the Holy Ghost. When you're regenerated. When you're washed, you're spiritually washed. Not only washed by the blood of Christ. But washed by the Holy Spirit, it's the washing of regeneration, wherein there is spiritual cleansing by the Holy Spirit. Now then, baptism is a symbol of this. You're not actually washed from your sins in baptism, though some try to say that you are. And unless you see that it, baptism is a symbol, you would think that, especially from Acts chapter 22, verse 16 where uh, it was said to Paul, Acts 22:16, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sin, calling on the name of the Lord. Now then, we found in other places that that baptism is the symbolism of the washing away of the sin. So that it symbolizes something that has already taken place. You read Romans chapter 6 and it says that, that it's the likeness of Christ's death and the likeness of his resurrection. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be raised in the likeness or buried in the likeness of his death. We shall be raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So it's a symbolism of what's already taken place spiritually. Otherwise, 
you would have to be baptized to have your sins washed away. Then if you ever sinned again, you'd have to be baptized again and have them washed away again. And so you'd have to keep on being baptized every time you sin, if that's the kind of cleansing that it took to wash away your sins. So it is a symbolism. And then we're washed by the Word of God. The Word of God is also a symbol of cleansing and washing. And Ephesians, let me read a verse for you. The book of Ephesians, chapter uh, 5, verse 26. It says, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the Word. The, the water, or the water of cleansing, is by the Word. Wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. So the washing comes from the word of God. We must hurry on now and give you this. We said there were three things, or I don't know if we said it, but there are three things that had had to do with uh, our salvation. When we were saved, in verse 11, three things. The first one is washing. Look at them. Sanctification and justification. The next one, it says, but you're sanctified, but you're justified. Let's take sanctified as second. This is the work done by the Spirit. This is the work done in the heart and the life of a believer, and it continues all through your life. This process of sanctification, gradually progressive sanctification. But really, you're sanctified apart from that progression. You're sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is initial sanctification. This means that this is how Jesus has set us apart through his death. On the cross, you read Hebrews uh, chapter 10, if you care to turn to it, verses 10 through 12, it says this, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words, it means being set apart by the sacrifice of Christ, sanctified by what he has done. And it, verse 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So Christ completely set us apart, or set us apart to himself, through his death and through his sacrifice. But then there is another thing in the Christian life that is like spiritual, progressive sanctification, and this is the work that is done and progresses in the heart and life of the believer, and it continues all through our lives. It continues from the moment you're saved until we go to meet the Lord. It's a process that's going on. Hasn't God set you apart and sanctified you and caused you to to be better and progress in your Christian life, in understanding of the things of God, in living the way the Lord would have you to live, and all of this process that goes on in your life. First John chapter 4, let me give you this, and verse 4, it says this, First John 4 and verse 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. By Christ being in us, he helps us to be greater than he that is in the world, and thus helps us to overcome, and it's that process of sanctification. If you have Romans chapter 8, it will tell you also something about uh, sanctification beginning with verse, uh, Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 9. It says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, know ye. Uh, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit uh, that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit 
to mortify, that means to crucify or put them to death. The deeds of the body you shall live. So the spiritual life is a process of putting to death the deeds of the body. Okay? We said there were three things. Back and hold your place where we're studying. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says justified. We're not only washed, but sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Justification by Christ is a work that he does for the believer. And after we believe, it tells us Romans chapter 4, the last verses, that he was delivered for our offenses, the last verse, and raised for our justification. And Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So by faith in Christ and in his finished work on the cross, by his death and resurrection, we are justified in the sight of God. He has done this work for us, and he's declared it to be ours. And since we have faith in him, we're justified by faith through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So, no con- uh, just- complete justification and no condemnation because of justification. Now then, <clears throat> I'd like for us to look on down, and we'll begin to read with verse 12. And we'll see as we progress on down. The sins against the body. The body of the believer is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And it's holy. Even though it is temporary, our bodies are temporary, but it's the tabernacle or temple of the of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And it's a holy body because the Holy Spirit will not live in a body that is not uh, holy. You say, well, how can my body be holy? Because Christ says in the believer, he lives in there. He dwells in there. Now, there's something about us that's not holy, but there's something about us that is. There's a whole lot about us that's not holy. The old flesh and all of its evil impulses and passions and thoughts and deeds and words and everything that motivates the flesh is unholy. But that which is of the Holy Spirit and that new nature, that divine nature, is of the Holy Spirit. And he is in us. Let's go ahead and read verse 12 and down a ways, and then we'll come back and talk about it a little. It says, All things are lawful unto me, Paul says, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He was saying, I'm not going to let something that just because I can do it, and it's not a sin for me, I'm not going to be brought under the power of it and do it and always be under the control of the flesh. He says, meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us also by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. He says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have? of God. And ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now then, it's for the Lord's use, and will someday, someday be glorified like him. We're told in verse 14 that he has raised up the Lord, and he will also raise up us by his own power. So it's for the Lord's use while we're here, because 
One day he's going to resurrect that body. Our body is going to be changed and fashioned like unto his glorious body. You read Philippians chapter uh, 3 and verse 20 and 21. It says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So he's going to change this body that we have now. And until then, it's a temporary temple or tabernacle for the Holy Spirit to live in. And because it is for the Lord's use and will someday be glorified, we ought then to honor it as such. We are members of his body and therefore should be kept holy. He says we're members of Christ. Body. Look in verse uh, 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. So since we are members of Christ's body, therefore we should be kept holy. Another thing that we understand that these terrible sins, immorality, fornication, as it's spoken of in verse 18 that we're to flee, is a sin against a man's own body. And immor- uh, immorality brings disease and it brings destruction to that body. We wonder why there's so much disease in, in our nation today. We wonder why there's so much destruction of the body. Well, it's because Men abuse that body, and they sin against that body, and they commit these sins of immorality that are sins that will destroy the body. Now, I think recently some of the preachers have been preaching on the radio and television of how that uh, some of the great diseases and some of the most terrible diseases that we have are from immorality. So if we want to know how to make our nation healthier, we're going to have to make our nation more pure in spiritual things. In other words, when people come back to the Lord, and when they're living right, they're not going to sin against this body and have it filled with the awful diseases that are a result of those sins. And there's so many sins of immorality that that's why we have so many uh, diseases and destruction of the body today. And you can look especially in that realm when he says, flee fornication, I believe that covers covers it all. He said in verse 16, Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? He says in verse 15, Shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? He used a very strong language here in showing the terrible consequences and the terrible uh, immorality of such actions of people. Now we know it's not only wrong, it's certainly wrong for Christians, but it's wrong for any man to commit such sins as are named as sins of immorality. And yet the only way they're going to be saved from them, as Paul said, such were some of you, is to be born again and to accept the Lord. They're not going to be saved from those sins by just saying, well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and not do them anymore. It takes a higher power than just man saying, well, I will or will not do certain things. Because men are steeped in sin. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're going to find the last thought for this night. And I'd like for you to look in verse 20 especially. That this body belongs to the Lord because he purchased it. As Christians, we're not our own. Let's read verse 19 and 20. What know ye not? That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is, look at this, in you, which you have of God. God gave him to you. And you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. In other words, it belongs to the Lord because he purchased us. Did he purchase just a part of this body? No, he purchased it completely. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, 
which are God's. Both belong to God. So as a Christian, we should realize that we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. Let me give you one verse. I think you'll find it in the book of uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning with verse 18 and 19. It says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers. Now, this is our redemption. This is the price that was paid. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we belong to the Lord because of the purchase price that was paid for our whole being, spirit, soul, and body. Jesus completely redeemed us. He paid for us in full, and therefore we belong to him. Our body belongs to the Lord because he purchased it, and therefore we ought to glorify him in it, in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's stand together.